1: Hello again, all you folks out there in podcast listening land. This is CJ here, your Renaissance man for the New Dark Age and Gorilla Scholar Warrior, back with another dastardly dose of dangerous history. And in this episode, I'm happy to present to you a conversation I recently had with a really cool guy and DHP-supporting listener, Scholar Warrior, Named Joshua, who has a podcast called The Dusty Den that you can find conveniently enough at thedustyden.com where he talks primarily about books, both fiction and nonfiction, and also sometimes movies and TV shows from a generally libertarianish anarchistic friendly point of view. Although he doesn't bludgeon you over the head constantly with it. And I had. Asked him about doing a joint crossover episode, wherein we'd have a conversation that would be released both as an episode of my podcast and as an episode of his podcast. And I suggested a few books. The one I suggested most strongly was the book we ended up discussing, which is the novel Santiago, a myth of the far future by science fiction author Mike Resnick. And this book, broadly speaking, fits into the space Western subgenre which is one of my favorite subgenres and as it turns out Josh was as well and this is a really cool book that i guess has almost been made into a movie a few times and while it has a significant cult following it's not quite as well known i think as it deserves to be amongst both the general populace and amongst kind of libertarianish anarchistic leaning types i think this is a book that really deserves more attention especially from these sorts of people You know, the kind of people that probably listen to this show for the most part. Now, if you're someone who cares a lot about plot spoilers and that sort of thing, you may want to check out this book before you listen to this episode. If you don't mind that sort of thing, then go ahead and listen away and see if it's a book that you want to read after all. But if you're someone who listens to this show regularly and you're someone that has at least a little bit of appreciation of science fiction type stuff, I think you'll love this book. And you can find used copies of it inexpensively. I think you can also find uh, the Kindle version of it pretty inexpensively as well. And, of course, in the show notes of this episode, aside from linking to the Dusty Den podcast, I'll also, in the Amazon affiliate links, put... The book Santiago, both the book version and the Kindle version, as well as a few of Mike Resnick's other novels that I really like that also kind of fit into this subgenre, And I'll also link to some other stuff that relates to the things that we talk about as well. But before we launch into it, I do have a few announcements. One is that I've officially set a goal on Patreon for the first time. Uh, I so far I've just been like, hey, you know, sign up if you want to support the show and get a few benefits and things. But I have a specific goal, kind of a medium-term goal that I'm trying to reach. I don't have an exact deadline of when I would like to reach it, but probably within about 6 months or so would be Best, Of course, if I can reach it sooner than that, so much the better. But I'm trying to get to $1,500, $1,500 per month on Patreon. And the reason for that specific goal as kind of a medium term goal is that if I get to $1,500 a month, above $1,500 a month on Patreon, I'll be able to step back from teaching any summer school at all. Now, right now, I teach summer school in the first half of the summer and then I have the second half of the summer off. Each summer term is seven weeks, so right now I have seven weeks in which I'm teaching summer school, and this is how it's been since I've worked here, seven weeks in which I'm teaching summer school and then seven weeks off, and during that seven weeks of teaching summer school, I'm quite busy, and it's tough, as it is the rest of the time when I'm teaching, to find as much time and energy to work on the Dangerous History podcast as I would like. But if I can hit 1500 a month on Patreon, I can definitely step back from teaching summer school and take the financial hit from there and still have my family's budget intact. And it'll mean I'll have the entire summer off a full 14 weeks to not be, you know, 9 to 5, busting my ass with teaching-related stuff, and instead I'll be able to devote a lot more time to... The dangerous history podcast and other related projects I have in my mind that I just simply have not had the time to work on. And of course, right now having only half the summer off, what ends up happening is that's also when like my family goes on various trips and things like this that also kind of takes away from working on the dangerous history podcast. But if I could step back from summer school, have the entire summer open, it'll actually free up a lot more free time because in that first half of the summer, We probably won't be doing any major family trips or anything like that, so it'll be just a lot of free time for me to devote to this sort of stuff. So if you're interested in having the Dangerous History Podcast continue to get bigger and better, please, I hope if you're not already, that you'll consider signing up at Patreon. And if you sign up for at least $5 per month, you'll get bonus episodes that are available there and nowhere else. You'll get early versions of regular DHP episodes 24 to 48 hours before the rest of the population does. And those will have all the like the Patreon and Amazon thank yous and those sorts of announcements and things and any ads I may run. Those things will not be on the special Patreon cuts of regular DHP episodes that I post in Patreon early. In addition, you will, of course, have the ability, if you so choose, to join our private Facebook group, DHP Scholar Warriors, and you will get the coveted official title of Dangerous History Podcast, Scholar Warrior, bestowed upon you by me, Anarchy's Smooth Operator. I do have some Patreon thank yous, shoutouts to Alberto, Trey, Alec, Paul, and Austin Thank you all very much for signing up in the week or weeks or however long it's been since the last episode I recorded. Thank you all very, very much. By the way, I just want to say before I uh, transition to my conversation with Joshua that this semester has been holy hell for me for a variety of reasons. None of them actually at all my fault. And I'm not just saying that I'd be, I'd be the first to admit if it was my fault, but. Basically, long story short, you know, not only did the hurricane disrupt things badly in September and kind of knock all kinds of stuff around, literally and metaphorically, but then also, again, not through choice and not through anything I did wrong or anything. I ended up having to teach way more classes this semester than I wanted to, and it has been killing me killing me. So I am so happy that there's only about two weeks left of this semester. It has just been bloody murder. And um, especially the last month or so, it it amped up. Um, some of you may know this, if I've communicated with you on social media about this or anything like that, but basically, I already was teaching an extra class and it was a new online class, which building a new online class from scratch is a ton of work. But then on top of that, about a month ago, one of my colleagues had to go out on medical leave for the rest of the semester, and I had to pick up two of his classes as well, and it's just been, from my perspective, just burying me, right? So... It's a miracle I've been able to do as many DHP episodes as I've been able to do. And as you may have noticed, I've been doing more kind of, you know, interview episodes lately. And in part, that's because I simply have not had the time to sit down and compose, you know, 15, 20 pages of notes to do, say, the next Civil War episode or something like that. Though those things obviously are still in the works, but it's just been impossible for me to get the time and energy to put those together. And uh, it's not quite as intensive to prepare and create a interview style episode. So anyway, that's what's been going on here. So let me just uh, say that if you're at all interested in discussions of books and movies and that sort of thing from an anarchist-friendly point of view, please consider checking out the Dusty Den podcast And without further ado, I present my conversation with Joshua of the Dusty Den about the novel Santiago by Mike Resnick.
0: CJ, it is great to talk to you and it's going to be awesome doing a crossover episode with you. Thanks for uh coming on the show and then again for having me on yours. Hey, my pleasure. Happy to do it. Looking forward to it. Yeah, I've been listening to your podcast religiously and between that and some of the interactions we've had personally, it's interesting to see like many of the things we we have in common. A lot of some of our political views, a lot of our philosophical views age, some family experiences, nostalgic interests, and such, likes and dislikes. I know just from talking to you, we have some differences, but we both seem to really like Western books and films and science fiction and horror, some of those sort of fringe genres. And the space Western subgenre, especially, that was really cool to find out you were into that. Yeah, that's one of
1: my favorite little micro-genres, or whatever you want to call it. In general, I'm kind of into any sub-genre that's um, what you might consider in the pulp tradition. So, like, I'm into sci-fi, but my favorite sci-fi stuff is the space western, or the space opera, those types of things. The the kind of more um, adventure, and the things where it's not just hard sci-fi showing off how much... The author knows their physics or things like that, but more about storytelling. And I'm into horror. I'm into crime, but in crime again of the more kind of pulpy, hard-boiled noir sort of crime. And and I'm into western, actual western westerns as well. Actually, one of my favorite western authors is actually Elmore Leonard, who a lot of people think of him mostly writing kind of crime fiction, and he he did. Uh, do that for much of his later career, but he started off with the Westerns. I like stories that have some action, but I like stories that aren't just kind of mindless action orgies. I like stories where the action or the violence or what have you has some kind of significance, some kind of moral substance to it where you care about the characters. I like things where even even where your protagonists are interesting, flawed uh, ambiguous. I like protagonists who are in some way outsiders or rebels or anything like that, or people who have maybe some darkness about them, even if they ultimately end up doing the right thing. So, yeah, I mean, long story short, I'm honestly surprised that the space Western isn't a more popular genre than it is, especially considering how many books and movies that are space Westerns have been very successful.
0: Yeah, I and mean, even stuff that's like a combination of a lot of those things you were talking about that might not quite be a space Western, but have some of those elements like Blade Runner is a good example. I used to like devour Philip K. Dick stuff. I really like a lot of his books and, and I like Westerns as well. Like I'm a huge fan of the old Clint Eastwood films and all these things and high noon and, you know, even the, the really old stuff. And I know my interest in in those things a lot of it came from my dad when I was growing up. Like he loved westerns, so did my grandfather, and so I was exposed to that stuff. Neither of them were really into sci fi. My dad a little bit more, but I just had early exposure to those. I wasn't really watching like kids' stuff a lot of the time when I was a kid. I was, for whatever reason, just allowed to like uh, you know watch uh, watch the old Clint Eastwood films and old films with the Duke, you know. But why do you think, like those specific genres, like the, the hard boiled novels or films, or, you know, the space westerns, let's say, anything like that, have an attraction to people with our sort of political or philosophical view of the world? People who are probably listening to your show and my show. I guarantee you there's a pretty large pool of people that are interested in the same kind of pieces of fiction.
1: Yeah, probably. And I think a big part of it is that there's the kind of quintessential American archetype, maybe the only archetype that is purely American or mostly American. And that's the archetype of the cowboy, which then later gets reincarnated in various forms, like the kind of lone wolf maverick detective. It appeals to Americans in general and especially to Americans who are kind of libertarian minded even if they're not in the formal political sense you know people who are just kind of general individualistic so think about the archetype of the cowboy you've got the the self-reliant individualistic guy who doesn't always obey the formal rules and laws and things but he does usually have his own code his own Uh, ethics or morals that he does follow, and it doesn't always resonate with other cultures the same way. It's very interesting. Something I've done from time to time is to read or watch detective stories or shows from other countries that have very different cultures from America, and then you kind of compare and contrast those with the most popular American detective fiction. And in my experience, you'll often find that you don't have the same kind of individualistic cowboy archetype in other cultures, detective stories. So I think that's a big part of it is this archetype of a cowboy. It doesn't have to literally be a cowboy. It could be a modern day detective of some sort or something like that. I think that, I think that archetype, it just resonates even on kind of a subconscious level.
0: Yeah. There's, there's comparisons to samurai films. Another thing that I love, I think are very, conversely they're very similar to our westerns you know the quintessential american western sure there's cultural differences and some philosophical differences but i think those are relatable genres and i always view samurai films as sort of the japanese western
1: yeah and actually there's there have been several very successful american westerns that were explicitly copied off of Samurai films. Oh, yeah. I'm thinking of uh, – what was it? The Wild Bunch that was originally Seven Samurai and yeah. then um, –
0: the, the Magnificent th- Seven, right? Is that
1: – Oh, yeah. that That's the one. Sorry. Yeah, Magnificent Seven. And then I think one of the Clint Eastwood – maybe Good, the Bad, and the Ugly or something – was was basically modeled on a Samurai I, film. I think
0: it was Fistful of Dollars. Okay. I, I think it was yeah. Fistful of Dollars. Um, and I forget the name of the, the Samurai film. But, yeah, I, I remember – looking into that when I first sort of discovered the parallel, and I think that was one of them that that came up.
1: But what's, what's really interesting is that those sorts of samurai films, they're almost always about a samurai or a group of samurai who are ronin, who are masterless, right, who are kind of roaming the countryside doing good deeds or roaming the countryside um, just trying to get by or whatever it is. Those sorts of stories, it's never it's never samurai who are just obediently obeying their master.
0: Oh, yeah. They have their own code. It's the don't mess with me and I won't mess with you sort of anti-hero kind of frontiersy vibe. It's just in a different setting, you know, with different weaponry and different cultural norms, I guess.
1: Yeah, and in the modern day, it translates into the, uh, the hard-boiled detective.
0: And I'm sure that it's that way in other cultures with their different sort of – Archetypes of the the frontier sort of independent spirit. I guess that's that's the best thing. Like we're both fans. I know just from talking to you of Han Solo and Malcolm Reynolds from Firefly. Like those kind of characters. The, they live by their own code. They live in their own sort of universe, and they're not out to do anybody any harm. But at the same time, they're not going to be made to bow before anyone either.
1: Yeah. Again, I, I think that that's particularly pronounced in the American mind and in the American tradition because it's not only it's it's a skepticism of government, but it's also a skepticism in general of institutions, and that includes kind of society in in general. You know, society trying to control the individual, other sorts of institutions, formal institutions and organizations that may not even necessarily be the state but that try and control the individual. So there's this very, very individualistic streak, the idea of the rugged, self-made, self-reliant, self-directed loner. And, you know, obviously you don't have to be American to appreciate these values. And obviously a lot of American uh, movies and things that showcase these values have become big hits worldwide. So I'm not saying that it's it's an American monopoly, but that it's like especially pronounced – in american fiction in all different media and there's an appeal to a certain type of person of this aesthetic of liberty for lack of a better term where even people who wouldn't normally kind of formally or politically self-identify as libertarian or something like that they can appreciate these sorts of characters so It's kind of interesting that even people who don't self-identify as libertarian who are writers can create these – you mentioned Han Solo, Malcolm Reynolds. As far as I know, neither George Lucas nor Joss Whedon really is much of a libertarian themselves, and yet they obviously crafted these archetypal characters. And I think in a way that this is more powerful and more important, this idea of an aesthetic of liberty than just um, giving people philosophy tracks to read. Because think about it, a guy like Malcolm Reynolds or a guy like Han Solo, they they don't spout off endless monologues about philosophy like some sort of unrealistic Ayn Rand character. Instead, they're guys who are actually they're kind of cool. Like you want to be them. You know, they have sex appeal, they're they're just cool guys. And they don't jabber on about their philosophy. They kind of live it. You know, they're, they're sort of like countercultural agorists. Um, they're doing propaganda by deed in a way, I guess. And think about it like, no kid ever wants to be John Galt. No kid wants to <laughs> dress up as John Galt for Halloween. No kid is like, man, one day I'm going to be the next John Galt and I'm going to spout off endless philosophical soliloquies for hours on end while my friends roll their eyes and leave the room. But, You know, every kid wants to be Han Solo, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, he's probably the most popular character from the original Star Wars film. You know, I mean, Luke's kind of boring and dopey by comparison. And you can see this also in the crime genre as well, you know, whether it's private detectives or even people who are actual police detectives, you know, badge-carrying types. There's still that archetype. Bruce Willis's character in Die Hard, right? I mean, his catchphrase is literally yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. Yeah, oh yeah. Or, or Dirty Harry. I mean, it's obviously pretty closely tied into the same kind of lone wolf, rebellious cowboy sort of a figure that the most enduring fictional detectives, at least in America, are usually the ones who don't always follow the official rules. They're usually the ones who have some degree of moral ambiguity, but – they do ultimately try to do what they think is right, and they'll do that regardless of whether it's actually kosher um, with the official rules and regulations and laws and things. So that I think is why that sort of character resonates in general with anyone who has kind of a rebellious, nonconformist point of view or bent of mind. And you know, I I often oscillate between optimism and pessimism, but. I do kind of see it as a positive sign potentially in some ways for America that even as so many trends seem to be negative for liberty at the moment, at least it's a hopeful sign to some extent that these sorts of archetypes, this kind of aesthetic of liberty, that it still resonates with people to a large degree.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. I I agree. We talked before once about sort of our mutual admiration of John Carpenter as sort of an auteur with libertarianish sensibilities, the kind of guy who does a lot with a little in his films. But his films, whether you like them or not, they're very much his, like he's a true auteur. He controls a lot of the different aspects. I was watching an interview with him. I'll, I'll link it in the show notes. I think I've linked to it before in, a, in another episode as well. I really like his interviews. He was talking about another quote from Toby Hooper, who did Poltergeist and um, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, stuff like that. And they were comparing horror films to Westerns. And they both seem to have this love of Westerns. And again, funny enough, Kurt Russell, who played the awesome Snake Plissken in Escape from New York, uh, Carpenter's Escape from New York, he said he modeled his character after Clint Eastwood. So just that sort of anti-hero kind of vibe, like he watched some Clint Eastwood films to get into the spirit of what he wanted Snake Plissken to be. Again, that quintessential play by your own rules. I'm doing this good deed, but I'm sort of doing it on my own terms and in my own way. And to further the relation there between you know, the two genres, I always paralleled the ending where Snake walks away and he's ripping up the cassette tape to sort of the the end of High Noon where Gary Cooper throws his badge in the dirt. That ending has been duplicated a lot in different films in different ways. But in High Noon, I think it was pretty original. And I remember when I was in film school years ago, they were talking about how there was a real controversy and that created a real problem for the filmmakers because of its negative attitude towards authority and sort of that image of throwing the the badge into the ground that almost didn't make it into the film. And it caused all kinds of problems for the producers and the director and stuff. But that was just like a ballsy move for 1952, given the political climate and the HUAC, I don't know if that was going on right at that time, but it was definitely sort of a, a ballsy statement for them to make in, you know, a run-of-the-mill Western, which turned out to be a, a true classic, which has been, you know, duplicated and copied in different genres, you know, have taken different things from it.
1: Yeah, well, that, that time period, I mean, it was definitely um, the high tide of conformity in a lot of ways in America that kind of uh, from the late 40s through, through the 50s where, I mean, everyone was kind of like dressing the same and everyone was – it's just a very homogenous time in American history. And I think that's it's really important to fixate on that one scene because if you don't have that ending on High Noon, it's a totally different movie. Oh, yeah. You know, because up until that point, Gary Cooper's character is essentially, you know, Dudley do the the clean-cut sheriff who's going to do the right thing, and that's not nearly as interesting of a character as a guy who – who does the right thing, and then at the end is like, you know, to hell with all this. You know, tosses his badge down. And I, I never put that together, the connection between that and Snake Plissken. I just, I never quite realized the, the similarity, but it makes perfect sense. And of course, the most interesting Westerns are usually those ones where the hero is basically an anti-hero, where he's not some boring, kind of dudley-do-right character. And, I mean, he can start off that way, but if he goes through the whole story and still ends up being that way Uh, it's a it's a very uninteresting story so you know even if the hero is technically speaking a sheriff or a marshal or something it's way more interesting if he doesn't always follow the rules or if he comes to think that the rules are fucked up or or what have you and I've, i've heard the same thing um by the way in regard to john carpenter i think i somewhere read or listened to an interview with him where he explicitly said that most of his movies are basically Westerns in in terms of um the story and the archetypes and things like that, which you know, you think about it, even something like They Live, you know, it's this idea. Oh, it's um,
0: such an underrated film.
1: Oh yeah. 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 I've I've literally got a got a movie poster of it on my office door at work. Um I'm I'm such a big fan of it. But, you know, I mean obviously there's all the kind of like horror movie stuff in there that makes it not literally a Western, but you have this idea of kind of a lonely drifter comes to town, sort of a thing, you know, think about the beginning of they live where you've got this music that almost sounds like it's from an actual Western. And then you've got this lonely drifter showing up in town. You know, how many Westerns is that the start of right?
0: Yeah. I've always said, like, if somebody says, what's your favorite, like piece of movie making or your favorite piece of film, I tell them it's the first 10 minutes of once upon a time in the West based on like, just the way the director presents it and just the, the cinematography, the, how beautiful it is, uh, where the character harmonica shows up on the train and then, you know, there's the three bad guys there to get him. Like there's very little talking. I think there's like three sentences in the first 10 minutes. And um, it's just a really very tense. I mean, you can, you can really, it's palpable the tension for that first 10 minutes and then, you know, it pays off and sort of like a gun battle that only lasts a few seconds. Again, another parallel to samurai films is it's a lot of it's about tension and then you get like a very split second of action that makes it worth it. But that is always like the, the same thing you're talking about. A grifter comes into town. You don't know a lot about them, but you know that they're getting ready to get involved in some sort of adventure. I think that, Science fiction, Westerns, what horror movies, too, have long been a refuge for people with some anti-state sort of tendencies in the in – the cre- talking more about creators like directors and producers and things like this and authors, too. I mean, from Bradbury, Philip K. Dick, Heinlein, Ayn Rand even – and I touched on some of this in my podcast of uh, I Am Legend. I think you can get away with more with saying more in those genres because you're already asking people to suspend disbelief a little bit, and I think that buys the creator a little bit of latitude with the audience. So if you have this anti hero in a modern drama, I think people are a little more skeptical of them or not willing to accept them quite as much as if you they're in the science fiction setting or the horror setting where you can make the world anything you want. You can take bits and pieces of things you don't like in society and sort of craft this unique universe. And it really gives your your characters a way to, to do some pretty interesting things and, and represent different things. And that's what I think really attracts me to science fiction especially, is the world can be anything it wants to be. And I think Santiago, the book we're talking about today, I think is a great example of that. It's packed with characters who represent different things and who are just interesting. There, there's a lot of that anti-hero sort of aspect and that's what initially right away turned me onto it as soon as I started reading it.
1: Yeah. And I think something else too, that these sorts of genres have going for them that allows them often to be uh, more creative and more subversive even is that, they're seen as not respectable right yeah. and so think about like, his states by Thaddeus Russell right where um I don't know if you've read it but um it's a it's a really uh mind-blowing book in a lot of ways but basically his main argument is that the people who've done the most to expand personal liberty in American history have generally been people that the rest of mainstream society looks down upon uh, in one way or another you know as as kind of the the rejects or the criminals or the losers or whatever, right? And that they're the ones that are, you know, in general being more creative and that are also by action, not by word, doing things to expand human freedom. Not that they even necessarily realize they're doing it, but just by being who they are, they're doing this. And in a way, I see these genres like science fiction and horror, for example, as being kind of like the fiction realm of that, where it's like, seen as not respectable, quote unquote, to be writing, like, pulpy uh, horror sci-fi stories. So the type of person who's going to gravitate to that, the type of of writer or whatever who gravitates to that is going to be someone who's a little more rebellious. And the type of person who's, you know, I'm going to write serious mainstream drama, that's not going to be the type of person who's going to have this rebellious streak. You know, it's always the non-respectable places are where the real originality comes from. I mean, even in in uh, times gone by, it's the the one guy who could poke fun at the king and get away with it was the jester. And at the same time, everyone kind of looked down on the jester as being, you know, not not very uh, not very impressive as being yeah. kind of a kind of a loser or a freak or whatever. But he's telling the truth, and you know, in, in modern times, I think some of the better stand up comics kind of fit this same description as well. Where uh, they're able to to tell more truth because they're kind of not respectable
0: on the fringe it, uh, there. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think it, I think it's kind of good to be not respectable. You know, think it, about, um, I don't, I don't know if you saw this or not, but many years ago when Stephen King uh, won that big writing award and like all these mainstream, serious, dramatic fiction authors were all like, you know, losing their minds. Oh my God, this guy who's, uh, you know, writes this horrible stuff about, about monsters and things. Oh, he won. Blah, blah, blah. It's like, he's a good writer. You know? yeah. This this snobbery that respectable mainstream people often have, I think it prevents them from being open-minded enough to really kind of deal with subversive or unorthodox themes.
0: Yeah, I I agree. And it I think you see it a lot in film too. Just some of the films that are, are classics, again, like the Westerns we've been talking about or, you know, some of the, especially the hard-boiled stuff. You know, you get into some of these old detective films and they're beloved and some of them are on like you know in the industry's top 20 top 10 films of all time and stuff like this some hitchcock films are in there like it's really kind of interesting what makes a lasting impression on people and it goes back really to what you started talking about at the top of the show which was that thing that's ingrained in us those american ideas of the of independence and that certain ruggedness and you do you get that a lot in, in this book. So this book, Santiago, A Myth of the Far Future, is by Mike Resnick, and it deals with a lot of the stuff we've been talking about, but it also deals with legend. I think it's interesting to bring that up because in your story that you read on the Halloween episode that you did, uh, Winter's End, which you tell it – it's like a second-person, tale-telling kind of story – and it was really cool to listen to uh, a story in the second person have that sort of legend quality to it. It also seems to weave into your involvement with history, that legend or that tale telling. You deal with legend a lot with what you do, but you're often you know, separating it out like legend from actual truth. I just think that that's interesting how that stuff appeals to People like you and I. I mean, the Odyssey, things like that. It's historical in a way because it's telling you about people's culture, what they valued, what they didn't value, what their principles were. But it's not historic in the sense that it's exactly what happened in a detailed account. So it does sort of have those historical qualities. And it was the way that Resnick did it in Santiago is really cool. I think it was really cool with the character of Black Orpheus and stuff like that, which we'll get into a little bit later, but have you noticed those things as well? Like a story or a book or anything that has that quality of like it being a legend or sort of a, a myth is like an attractive type of story to you.
1: Yeah. Well, I I think myth and legend are, are very interesting ideas and, it's a it's a huge part in general of storytelling and i've i've always been fascinated by kind of jungian psychology and archetypes and how these things relate to things like fiction and our understanding of the world and i think myth and legend are great but they can be problematic as well because on the one hand they can be fun if they're just being used to kind of tell a story you know i think storytelling is great um if they're being used to to convey some sort of a lesson of some sort or maybe to inspire people or even just for pure entertainment which i'm someone who actually thinks pure entertainment is actually quite a noble motive you know to write something of like hey i want someone to sit and read this and enjoy it you know that's to me that that's not a that's not a low motive that that's actually quite noble in a way it's more no, noble than having a motive that's like well, I'm going to uh, try and bludgeon you with my philosophy and let me just spray a little frosting of uh, of a story over top of it so I can uh, shove this shove this uh unpalatable pill at you and you know myth and legend can all be fine for those sorts of things, but they can potentially be dangerous and one way I think is when people take them literally, that can be dangerous in a bunch of ways, and so you know if you think about like sacred texts right that are some some particular group says oh this is you know the the literal truth with a capital T word of god or whatever whatever it is and the idea is that you're supposed to just literally take it at face value and never question it and that can be dangerous rather than saying hey look you know this is a this is an old book it's not literally factual in all in all ways but it has some important ideas and values to convey and whatever sort of the more Um, Jordan Peterson, for example, way of looking at something like the Bible. But it's also dangerous, myth and legend, when – and there's some overlap with kind of the the religious um, fundamentalist take on it as well – dangerous when myth and legend are are manipulated or in some cases maybe even fabricated by the powerful or those who want to be powerful in order to control – or at the very least, deeply influence the thoughts and beliefs of the people they want to rule over. And of course, if you can control people's thoughts and beliefs, you can exercise control on their actions and all that. So, you know, myth is fine when it's making fiction more meaningful or when it's conveying some sort of like a moral lesson or some sort of, you know, timeless truth or whatever, or even when it's just for entertainment. But yeah, I mean, when people think that the mythological view of the great presidents or the great you know leaders of history or whatever if if they think that that's actually fact then that's really problematic because it will mislead them in their understanding not only of the past but by extension of the present
0: i think if you just take it as good stories like you were talking about before like the motivation being purely to entertain i think like an example would be we both we both covered the legend of sleepy hollow and our (laughs) respective halloween episodes you actually read it the whole which i really enjoyed and then i talked a little bit about the disney cartoon and related it to one of the things that i had read very briefly i think the pretense of legend allows for a good balance of mystery and asking the reader to allow for exaggeration. And what I mean by that is if you know, you're dealing with legend as this book is the author can really sort of go full pulp on it. You know that they're not necessarily being literal. Some of the adventures that they're taking the characters through are exaggerated. The coolness of the character that, that Clint Eastwood in the bar, you know, shooting, three people down in less than a second and not missing any of them you allow for that belief because it is sort of mythic and legendary and that allows you just to have characters that can do some pretty incredible things
1: yeah and i think that uh in the case of mike resnick a lot of his stuff i by no means have read everything by him he's written way too much for anybody to to say that but you know i've I've read a, a probably maybe a half dozen other novels by him aside from Santiago, And I've, I've read uh, various short stories by him and not all of his stuff, but a lot of his stuff has that degree of kind of legendary uh, take on it. And some of it goes even further. Some of it, a a few things I've read by him are in the format of like tall tales, which again, another classic American um, device, the tall tale. And, you know, he, I think he understands that, is a powerful storytelling technique and that it can actually be okay to have an unreliable narrator in the sense of, you know, the, even if it's a third person, kind of an omniscient narrator, but still this idea that, oh, uh, even the third person omniscient narrator might not be telling me the literal cold, hard facts and nothing but the facts. I think it's it's an effective technique because the astute reader or or viewer or listener, depending on what medium you're talking about, is going to understand that oh yeah this is to an extent this is an unreliable narrator but that's okay the general gist of the story is correct you know whether or not some of the facts are are not quite accurate or exaggerated that's fine and I think it's good but I I just wish people had the same kind of understanding that a lot of the same analysis applies to a lot of history that. You know you should you should take things with a certain grain of salt that history is is often not just you know the truth the whole truth, and nothing but the truth.
0: You had mentioned not having been able to get through everything that he's he's written uh you actually- you introduced me to Resnick, so I had never really looked at any of There was a few titles when we started talking about some books to talk about that were familiar to me. I'd had a couple of them written down somewhere. But I didn't connect them with Resnick. I wasn't familiar with the author's name, uh, ironically, being such a big fan of the genre. But the guy like really has his own library <laughs> of, of authored works. His career, ultra impressive. Just from the brief biographical information I was able to research, he's credited with, I think, seven tabloid magazines, being, being the editor three men's magazines. He wrote a weekly column on horse racing for a while, and then a a monthly column on purebred collies. Uh, But the real crazy statistics come into play with his fiction. He's been nominated 37 times for Hugo Awards. He's won five of them. And according to Locus, which is a magazine out of Oakland, centering around sort of science fiction and fantasy and things like that, he is first on the list of all-time award winners for short fiction, Living or Dead. He has numerous other accolades to his name, including several Homer Awards, a Nebula Award for Best Novella, International Awards. I mean, super prolific. He's written 74 novels, I think, 278 pieces of short fiction, 29 collections, nonfiction articles. I mean, he's really spanned the genres and the different types of writing from nonfiction to fiction and that is very impressive from someone who studied this stuff in college and is really into reading all different kinds of things and writing stuff like writing for the show and and writing my own short pieces of fiction it is amazing to understand how somebody could accumulate that kind of a resume in one lifetime and he's still writing
1: yeah i mean it's it's incredible and you know i've i've probably written through to completion a few dozen short stories. I've never, uh, maybe one or two novellas, I've never written a single thing as long as a full-on novel. And I can tell you that, at least for me, just to do like a 10 or 15 page short story takes me a ridiculous amount of time and energy. And and so, you know, my hat's off to him just for that. And isn't it interesting what you said um, that you hadn't really heard of him until just recently when I mentioned this to you? Isn't that interesting that he's not more of a high than he is, you know? Um, you hadn't heard of him, and I probably only heard of him maybe like eight or so years ago. Uh, when I stumbled across him, I think I was just doing research trying to find more space Western-type books to read, and uh, my hazy memory is that uh, Santiago was the first thing by him that I found, and I think I found it just because it was on somebody's list somewhere of good space Western Books, and yet, as prolific and as successful and as interesting of a writer as he is, he's just not nearly well known to the general public yeah. as I think he deserves to be. I mean, I, I think, frankly, that Santiago deserves to be much better known among libertarian type people than the book is. I, I think it's actually a very profound and useful book to people who are, you know, broadly speaking. Libertarianish, anarchist, uh, individualistic types, and yet it's not. And I think this book deserves to be uh, much better known than a lot of other books that are more commonly pushed as, oh, here's a libertarian sci-fi book. You know, a, a yeah. fair number of things that are that fall under that category I've read and not been very impressed by, and yet here's this this writer with this book that I think is head and shoulders above a lot of them.
0: I agree a hundred percent. I did an episode a while back on. Uh, the moon is a harsh mistress. I know a lot of libertarians love that book, and I, it was good. I didn't. I don't dislike it. I talked about a few problems that that I had with it, and then a few things, that, questions that I had about it. One of those, just to relate the two because they are related, is Resnick. I think is very good from reading this. At he tells the story. He's not like you said trying to beat you over the head with an ideology the story comes first and the story is so good and so entertaining that it keeps you there to where I think what can happen with some authors. And, and I will sort of note the moon is a harsh mistress on this, even though I did enjoy it. It gets lost somewhere between a, a story and a treatise to me where it's like, you you can't really decide what it is for a while. And then like when you're reading Ayn Rand, when you're reading, uh Atlas Shrugged or The Fountainhead or something like that it's a treatise you know it's a it's philos it's philosophy and that's what you're reading it's just in fiction form this is a good story and it's a good pulp story and it's one that has these sort of motifs and subtleties that we've been talking about ingrained in it and especially in this one like you think that maybe that's that's all that you're going to get from from these Standpoints, but in the end, you get uh, it really picks up as something that would appeal to people with libertarian or anarchist type sensibilities. I would be really curious to talk to Resnick and see what his political leanings are. That would be very interesting to me to see if it's he's just writing and sort of telling the stories through this universe and this character's eyes, or if there is a little bit of him. In, in some of these things that he's written specifically Santiago. So when I went to order the book, uh, I think it was like three bucks on Amazon for a quote unquote, like new copy. I noticed the front cover on it had a little, it was like a sticker, but it was actually printed on the front cover and it said basis for an upcoming major motion picture stamped on. I got like all excited. I was like, oh man, there's this film that I don't even know about that's going to be really cool. So, I did some digging and I found out that unfortunately it never got produced. So, I was like, well, I want to read more about it. So, I did some dig- more digging. And, and in an interview done by somebody named Joshua Sky at uh, Futurism, which you can look up online, and I'll link to it in the show notes, Resnick said he optioned Santiago in 1990. He also said it's still under option and that he's made more from it being optioned for 30 years. Than he would have made if if it had been made. I I don't know if he was joking a little bit or not there, but he claims he got paid in full for producing two screenplays for the book. So there are screenplays out there, and Miramax was an interested studio. And I, I think the big question is why hasn't this thing been made? Like make it, damn it! <laughs> you know, what I mean? like, we want it. There's people. There's an audience for this. There's people who want to bring Firefly back. There's this love of Star Wars right now, which. Some things have changed with Star Wars, I know, but it just seems like the perfect atmosphere for a film like this to get made, and especially if it would be him having written the screenplays for it, I think would be bring the same sensibilities that you and I like about it, and it wouldn't get too washed out with you know mainstream motion picture making.
1: Yeah, I mean I'd love to see it made it as a movie, but I'm always a little bit hesitant to see a book that I love – be made into a movie just because there's so much chance that it gets derailed i mean i'd love to see this as a movie if if it was definitely going to be done right you know if it was definitely going to be faithful to the book well-made high quality competently directed good actors realistic special effects not goofy cartoonish cgi over the top and i would really hate to see it made into a movie if it wasn't done well though i mean that, that would drive me nuts um, you know, I'm always the annoying guy who's like, the book was better. The book was better.
0: Oh, yeah. I'm that guy, too. It's, you know, and it is. I think you get you got to whittle it down for a film. And there's certain things. I mean, they're look, they're making movies. They got to make a mon- money on it. They got to make a return. And it's the type of thing where books. I don't know. I think they're more niche, you know, like there's a lot of people who are sci fi readers. And that's the majority of what they read. So the author knows that. That's who they're writing for. I think when you write a screenplay, and this is just my opinion, the studios and people like that, there you got to appeal to a wider wider range. And I think a lot of things get lost in translation there, uh, yeah. Just because yeah. so many more people watch films than read books, you know.
1: Well, also if you think about the creative process, right? I mean, how many people are involved in a novel? Not very many. Basically, the writer and then like maybe one or two editors. Yeah and and their input is generally not nearly as um you know likely to drastically alter things as uh, a hollywood movie which is essentially made by a giant committee of people instead of by one creative mind plus an editor yeah and i don't i don't know i i think that maybe maybe the best thing that could happen with santiago would be if think about like lately all the best work is happening in television rather than in movies, most for the most part, right? So maybe the best thing would be to instead make it a Netflix miniseries yeah. um, instead of a Hollywood movie because it seems like there's a lot more willingness to be creative and and not just, you know, play it safe and, and all that in like Netflix TV series or HBO uh series or something like that.
0: Yeah. The landscape is changing that vehicle of Netflix or, you know, a similar subscription service or different way of doing something creative, I think, is the way the medium is headed. And you're starting to see bigger and bigger names drawn to these uh, projects as far as actors go and directors and things like that. And it's pretty cool. But going back to what you were talking about, it being more 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 hands in the pot, so to speak. You know, authors have a notoriously difficult time on movie sets uh, when they're converting a work and they, you know, the author typically is there as a consultant or something like that. They always have problems with the director and the screenwriters because you're going from something that's very much yours or very much theirs so and they have to relinquish some control to the producers and the director and I think that's very difficult for people and i can imagine there's things that even just you and i doing our own podcasts we both do our podcasts completely independently we don't outsource anything so if somebody was to like come on board and start editing my podcast for me or something like that i would have a little bit of trouble <laughs> trouble with that you know like i just i want to have the last say in things that i create and i think that that's what makes authoring a book you know, or a story, or a collection of stories, or anything like that. Very unique. Like you said, it's not uh, creativity by committee. It's, it's very much a, an individual thing. So just to get on to the book itself, the first thing I want to say about it is that to anyone who maybe hasn't read it yet, is that it's not subtle. It, it's got that pulp quality that we were talking about, and sort of an over-the-top feel but it does it without losing its own credibility. And it, I did read for me, like a pulp detection novel, something by Raymond Chandler. I'm a big fan. Something in that regard. Every character is like an archetype. Every scene is like dripping with atmosphere and the, the images and the dialogue are extremely deliberate, you know, right out of a Clint Eastwood film. There's no bullshitting around. It's, the story moves too, which I appreciate. I don't like pretentious writing that tries to be over flowery. I, I like an author to move on and get on with it. I just I think that Resnick does that really well, and I really appreciate that from an author who's able to keep the story moving, keep you into it, and still give you all these awesome descriptive moments uh, that really let you know what's going on in the story. I, I didn't get lost in this thing once and wonder what was going on. I knew exactly what was being said, exactly what the characters were doing. And, uh, I really appreciated that. And it's just an awesome story. So yeah, Resnick,
1: he's got a, a kind of deceptively simple writing style where it's mostly just very kind of clear and transparent. And, um, anyone who's never tried writing fiction may not appreciate how, how difficult it is to write like just very kind of clearly and, and simply.
0: Yeah. Matheson does that as well too. I mentioned that he was my favorite author from the Southern California sorcerers club. Those people who contributed to like the twilight zone and the star Trek series and stuff like that. They, he, he's very simple in the way that he writes. And I, I get that quality from, from Resnick as well. One thing I, I like about his story or this book, Santiago, that I think sets it apart from some other things that I've read before, is that legend aspect we were talking about before. It has that Odyssey kind of vibe. Each chapter begins with a few poetic lines from a verse of historical music written by this inner frontier self-appointed historian named Black Orpheus. Early in the novel, he's even quoted as being the Homer for 500 worlds. So there's a direct comparison, even Resnick's making to those mythical texts. And it has that oral history appeal, that tale thing going on, a mythology going on. And it's fun. It's cool to read a book that is fun to read. It's just a great story, but it is saying a little something. You know, it is It is saying It builds. it builds to something where especially in that last third of the book, you get a lesson, you get the morals that these characters are grappling with, and it becomes more than you might initially think it is, even though it's initially really good in its own right.
1: Yeah, I like that it doesn't bludgeon you over over the head with its message from from the get-go, and by the time it actually does really sort of get to its message, it does just feel like a natural extension of, of where the story was going.
0: yeah. I, I like you were saying before. I just think it's very unappreciated, and I'm definitely I got some more of Resnick's work in queue because I'm definitely going to read some more of it. The character in the story, there's a lot of characters that you meet, and they all they all are developed really well. But Santiago, the the namesake of the of the novel, Santiago is like this legendary arch criminal. So you take this whole. Space Western science fiction frontier type world filled with these over-the-top characters, and you drop in this mythical bad guy. The way I initially pictured when I started reading it was like a Kaiser Sose type of reputation for the people familiar with the usual suspects, right? Where some people think it's a legend, some people claim that he's real, the stories are over-exaggerated, like there's one like he's uh, 10 feet tall or something like that. Some people think it's an alias used by different criminals, very similar to that sort of mythic bad guy in The Usual Suspects. And a story, as you know, is only as good as the bad guy. You can't have a weak bad guy in a story.
1: Yeah, and he's off screen for most of the book. So that just sort of builds the, the suspense and the mystery and so on. Um, Not just, you know, who's going to find him first, but also like, what is he really is, is, is any of this stuff about him actually true?
0: Right. Which again, by the end, it doesn't just fizzle out by the end. You find, I think the end is so rewarding. You find out that it's really not what anybody really thinks, you know, and there's some, there's some elements of truth in there, but there's a lot that's unseen. You mentioned people who's going to find him first. There's a bunch of bounty hunters, you know, who are after Santiago to, for different reasons. They have different motivations. And the minute, the minute bounty hunter enters any story, I'm usually in, like, you know, it, it starts off cool because you get two bounty hunters discussing Santiago and what they're going to do. And the first, like, real character, the main character, I would say, of the story is a bounty hunter. And that's uh, Sebastian Nightingale Kane, who's often referred to as Songbird in the legend, in Black Orpheus's Legends. Although he doesn't like that name, he doesn't like being called the Songbird. He prefers just Kane, and that's usually how he's referenced in the book. But he is that Clint Eastwood type. He's very laconic, kind of a loner, cautious, but also a man of action. Pretty hard not to like.
1: Yeah, he appeals to us in that kind of Clint Eastwood, uh, Snake Plissken, Han Solo sort of mm-hmm. way, and, you know, the bounty hunter is another common trope from the Western genre, and it, there's just something so appealing to that, especially to young men, I think. There's just something about the bounty hunter that really appeals to us, and, well, not that I'm that young anymore, but, you know, still, still young at heart, I guess, but... You know, think about think about how popular of a character from the original Star Wars films Boba Fett was. He was literally on screen for like a few minutes and hardly <laughs> did anything and then got killed. And yet, you know, we have the, the characters um, from Star Wars yeah. just by looking cool and being a bounty hunter.
0: Yeah, and I mean it's the same thing with – again, with the Clint Eastwood Westerns and stuff like that. The The poster, $1,000 reward, $2,000 reward. That – independent spirit is just captured very well with Kane just like it is in, in those films. In the book, it describes him as, quote, by almost every criterion, a nondescript and unremarkable man, end quote. I think that's one of the things that kind of makes him likable. It goes back to the anti hero. He's dressed like you would expect some brown leather, utilitarian frontiersy garb, you know, I like the description of his boots the best. It says, <laughs> quote, only his boots stood out, not because they were new, but rather because they were so demonstrably old, obviously carefully tended, yet unable to hold a polish, end quote. That describes perfectly my own <laughs> love affair with my boots. I have an old pair of leather pull-ons. They're not cowboy boots. They're just like uh, work boots, like rancher boots. Like, I've had them for over a decade. Like, I, I polish them even though they won't hold a polish anymore, like, just to take care of them. They're, I don't go out with them anymore. They're nothing I would wear out to dinner, but I still wear them when I'm working around. And those, when I was visualizing this character, when I was getting a mental picture of him on my mind, definitely wearing those boots. I don't know, there's just something so weird about how you visualize characters when you're reading them and the little bits of you or little bits of other people that you know, or are people that you've seen in films or, or things like that.
1: Yeah. Well, again, it's uh, Resnick's skill as a writer that he's able to toss out just a handful of descriptions, you know, about somebody's appearance or what have you. And then just based on those details, you're like, all right, I kind of know who this person is.
0: Yeah. So in the beginning of the story, Kane has an encounter in a bar with this steel fisted bounty hunter name. I think it's named, his name is Giles San It's
1: so a it's a take on, you know, without pity, right? Sans pitié. Yeah.
0: And um, he's got this big steel fist and it's like the, his weapon of choice, you know, and this interaction that they have, it got me like right into the mood and into the action. The dialogue is great. It's simple and it belongs in this sort of frontiers world. And they're debating sort of a territorial dispute, some poaching, if you will, by Cain in Pettier's area, to which they there's no law that they reference. There's no governing agency that gives them rules to follow. It's sort of a gentleman's agreement. It's the laws of the frontier. It it jumps back again to those appealing sort of libertarian or frontiersy anarchist type of things where the principles that attract people like me to a story like this and i mean allow some room for a bridge too far in that regard i'm by no way saying libertarianism or or anything like that is directly associated with like the wild west i don't want to paint that picture of that's my view of a libertarian world or anything like that but it does contain some of those I don't want to say philosophies but those feelings or or things like that that being able to take care of yourself kind of spirit those individualistic or the the frontier playing by its own rules I guess that that dialogue gives you that sensibility right away for the book.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's an important point. You see it also in things like uh the pirate code that they talk about in Pirates of the Caribbean and things like this. And and there is historical basis for it. The idea of kind of organic common law that evolves in a given society, based on kind of shared principles and values, and also based on experience. And it kind of brings to mind to me the point that thoughtful anarchists often have to make to people who who think that anarchy in the political sense means just you know people running around uh, raping and eating each other all day long. No. Anarchy means no rulers. It doesn't really mean no rules. It right. doesn't really mean psychotic trans- kind of acting like the Reavers on Firefly. <laughs> and I I think you, you get glimpses of that in this, where, where when they're on the frontier areas of space, there's often a lot less formal law and order. And yet it's not like everyone's just running around uh, raping each other to death every second um, because, you know, Hobbes was right and without a Leviathan over us. We all just want to wage war against each other 24 seven. You know, there there is this idea that there's this evolved common law and there really was a fair amount of practical anarchy on the U S frontier, wherever the kind of most frontier areas were the places that were not quite really settled yet. So, and, and something that's often overlooked is that part of the impetus Behind westward expansion was the desire of many individuals to get away from the heavy hand of government and society, too. But, you know, society plus government. And I, and I think there's a connection between excessive population density and people wanting to be ruled more and then on the converse, lower population density and people being more uh, ruggedly individualistic just just because of experience. But, you know, if you think about the first wave of people who would move into a new territory in the American West, it would generally be the most kind of maverick individualistic people. It would be your kind of mountain men types, you know, just think of somebody like Jeremiah Johnson or whatever, right? And those people would go out to the to the edge of, like, frontier to get away from oppressive institutions, including but not limited to government. And... When, quote-unquote, civilization would eventually catch up to them, they'd often move again. So they'd always be like one or two steps ahead away um, from the expansion of, of formal institutions and political power. So while it's true that the Western frontier zones were nominally under United States jurisdiction, often in day-to-day practice they really weren't. You know, Just because you're too far away from the, the nearest town – or, like, yeah, you're technically under the jurisdiction of some marshal or sheriff or whatever, but, like, it's one guy ruling over a territory the size of, you know, northern Arizona or something. It's like, in in reality, there's not a whole lot of law enforcement in the formal sense. And, and yet, even though these places would have, in practice, had little or no formal law enforcement or courts, that doesn't mean that they didn't have any rules It doesn't mean that there weren't rules that were being enforced. They would have sometimes formal covenants in a community or in a group, or they would have just sort of informal, kind of like what we were describing, evolved, organic kinds of codes of common law, where there were things that people would see crime, like murder and theft and rape. And often these things would be vigorously enforced, even if there's no sheriff anywhere nearby. And there are more formal examples of this you can find where there were, there were standards of behavior for people participating in wagon trains heading west. You know, hey, if you're going to be part of this group, here's some rules you got to follow. Um, there were standards of behavior for people setting up mining claims, that sort of thing. So um, these things, at least initially in the frontier areas, were not formally encoded in state law. Or enforced by state courts, they would be kind of enforced on a more informal ad hoc kind of a basis. but they worked pretty well in a lot of places. and you could make an argument that they often worked more more justly in the eyes of the people who lived under these sorts of things than the the state's cops and courts and things when those things made their way out there. and, and in fact, there was relatively little crime on the front here in the sense of like people murdering each other or stealing from each other. You know, it happened obviously, but it wasn't really all that common statistically speaking. And I think then or now you would have found much, much more crime, including violent crime, both in absolute terms and in per capita terms, if you were in the larger cities back east where there was a lot more formal government and cops and that sort of thing. So it's this kind of flip side where. Even even today, think about the the parts of America where you're probably the least worried about getting mugged or something, right? It's probably some some rural backcountry area where there's like one sheriff for a whole county, and that's it. Yeah. You know? And then the places you're more worried about is like Chicago or L.A. or something where there's like tons of cops on every corner.
0: Yeah. Related to that, there's a spot of dialogue that Pettier and Kane are ha- are having. When they're sitting down discussing Santiago and this sort of infringement on Petier's territory that Kane has had to, basically, what happened is Kane had to go into Petier's territory where he sort of is is the main bounty hunter to to apprehend one of his bounties, one of these these criminals or whatever, and and he's allowed it to slide without any confrontation this time, just so long as they have an understanding that it's not a common occurrence, kind of thing, and Petier says quote, but it would be a good idea for you to remember that there are rules out here on the frontier, end quote. And then there's a back and forth, and Cain replies. He says, quote, oh, I hadn't noticed any, end quote, to which Petier comes right back and he says, and this is where I think it's very interesting, quote, nevertheless, they exist and they're made by people who can enforce them, end quote. That's pretty cool. It goes back to sort of that moon is a harsh mistress, like with the colonists on the moon, that whole vibe, everything you were just talking about with westward expansion in the U.S. too. The people who are enforcing things are enforcing them because, A, they can, and B, it's a mutually benefit. People need each other in these environments, and it behooves you to adapt and become useful to the situation that you're in instead of being a deterrent or a criminal or something like that. Even in a modern sense, one of the things that I was talking with Brian Kaplan about anarchism and things like this, you know, and he's talked about it before in other interviews were, uh you know, like uh, just an, ex- an easy example of like a Yelp review, <laughs> like a Yelp review is likely to do more damage to a business or somebody selling something than, Uh, some sort of regulation or something like that. So it's reputation basically has a lot to do with your – you want to – in a society like that, in a society like is set up in this book or The Moon is a Harsh Mistress or even in real life in that westward expansion, your reputation was valuable and you would play ball and play by the established rules to keep that reputation intact.
1: Yeah, and that's why – you know, certain certain things were treated as such a big deal. Like, for example, cheating at cards or being a horse thief. You know, these sorts of things in the Old West um, were seen as like such an affront to the basic standards of of uh, proper behavior out on the frontier. Yeah,
0: yeah. So, getting back to the story, Kane ends up paying the i think it's the owner of the establishment where he's having this back and forth with Pettier. He they he came pays for a lead on Santiago. And you know he he finishes drinking and doing his things and then he he goes off to visit a potential associate or an associate of an associate something that kind of thing. Uh but the guy's name is Stern and he's def- definitely like an odd character and Before he goes, Kane picks up this sort of sidekick. I don't know if sidekick is a good word. Uh, It's just sort of somebody who needs a ride at the time because another bounty hunter is is hunting after this guy. And Kane needs some information that he has. And he's a gambler. And there's a debt that he's been unable to pay. So somebody else is, is after him. And his name is Halfpenny Terwilliger. He's a different kind of character. He's he's a gambler. He's sort of a a funny, kinda of, kind of comic reliefish kind of guy. And he provides that back and forth with Kane. He he's really a vehicle to keep Kane talking a little bit here and there in the beginning throughout the adventure. So you learn a little bit more about him and, and things like that. But he's also interesting in his own right, I guess.
1: Yeah, he's he's kind of a foil and a contrast where yeah. it wouldn't be very interesting if Kane was traveling with another Kind of tough, laconic bounty hunter. And instead you get this guy who's, you know, kind of a beta, right? I mean, mm-hmm. he's, he's not particularly brave or physically impressive. He's, he's kind of clever in a way, but he's also gotten in over his head and that sort of thing. So he, he provides a, a relatively weak character in that sense that then contrasts with Kane that allows Kane to, you know, aside from allowing them to exposit some of the story, allows Kane to kind of. Uh, exhibit his character in conversation as well.
0: I always liked characters like that in books. One of the things you sort of learn as the story goes on and as Resnick is setting up this world for you, there's a line I want to read. You you get it here. It comes, it contrasts the world of the democracy, which is the state-run central planets, so to speak. It's the main sort of regulated area where where a lot of people live. And then there's the inner frontier, uh, which are a little further out. They're more free, more void of government oversight. And and the line revolves around currency. But I think it's it's interesting. It's from the character Stern that I was just talking about. He says, quote, I realize that absolutely no one uses cash anymore in the heart of the democracy. But it has such a nice feel to it that I'm glad we still indulge ourselves out here in the extremities. End quote. It's kind of like the Alliance, I guess, and the Firefly series. And then there's the outer planets. You get that contrast all over the place in the story. Uh, but this is a really good example. They, they have different, a different way of, of getting resources and dealing with things. They, they deal in different currencies in the book. You have that sense that there's just a lot more free trade. There's a lot more exchange of cultures and ideas the further away you get from the centralization of the the core planets in this universe that Resnick's sort of creating.
1: Yeah, it definitely has some comparison to the universal Firefly in that regard. And I've wondered, ever, ever since I came across Santiago, I've wondered. If Joss Whedon might not have been influenced by reading Resnick, I have no idea if he's ever read anything by Resnick or not. But when you look at how he kind of constructed the worldview of Firefly, um, who knows? He may have, or or they may have just hit on similar concepts independently. Yeah. Um. I th- I think it's possible because they're the, they're both space westerns, and I think that's an historical phenomenon you can find in the actual American West where. There's different rules out in the frontier and different ways of doing things, and in a way, the frontier is is harsher in a lot of ways, and maybe a more Spartan existence, but on the other hand, there's pluses to it, including more personal freedom and And also, in a way it's sort of more human. It's like, hey, we're using actual money instead of um, imaginary digital uh, entries. Yeah. And, and and that would have been true even in the American frontier, where it's like, if you were in a big city, you might just use banknotes to pay for stuff. And then if you're out in the West, it's like, hey, you know, give, give me a silver dollar kind of thing. And he, uh, jumping ahead a little bit later on in the book, when we do meet Santiago, there was an interesting part where Santiago has a giant library of actual physical books. And he makes some remark about, well, you know, I just kind of find it more, I don't remember if he says more real or more human or whatever, but He kind of says like, yeah, you know, I I like the tangible feel rather than just digital entries of books.
0: Yeah, it's almost like I don't want to say trying to outrun technology, but I think there's an aspect of that in that kind of whether you're talking in real life about, you know, westward expansion or exploration or being on the on the frontier and being free or things like that. I think there's a theme of just trying to outrun the automization of life or of whatever world, you know, an author's creating or anything like that. Sure.
1: Yeah. 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 Think, think about something like the film lonely are the brave, which is based on a story Mm -hmm, by, um, Edward Abbey, who was an anarchist and a, and a writer of the American West in the 20th century. And I didn't know this until recently that lonely are the brave is actually adapted from one of his stories. But, um, same idea where it's kind of a little bit of a little bit of Ludditism, you know, a little bit of um, technology and, and civilization and all these things, you know, big, big, huge cities crowded full of people that all these things, not just technology, but big institutions and giant crowds of people mass mass together, that all these things in a way are kind of dehumanizing. Sure. And I, th- I think there's a lot of that in a, in a lot. Of, I mean, going all the way back to things like the tall tales of Paul Bunyan. Right. I mean where it's kind of man versus progress or man versus um, giant institutions.
0: I mean, a, a brave new world. Think about, it. I mean, that's a really big theme in that book. And I think it's, it's interesting. I, I've i heard, maybe it's you who, <laughs> who have actually heard, put it in the terms of a lateral oppression instead of an oppression from on high or from a authoritarian standpoint. It's more of a, of an oppression that we give ourselves through sort of a collectivism, I think there was you talking about it in a specific episode that I was listening to.:
1: It may very well have been uh, when you've said as much stuff that's been recorded <laughs> as I have at this point. Sometimes it's tough to remember all of it, but yeah, or I, m- I might have said horizontal enforcement, something like that, where you kind of can get the take advantage of people's natural tendency towards conformity, at least most people and use that so that the sheep police the other sheep and, and the, the rulers don't even really have to lift a finger.
0: Yeah. Like so. the social pressures sort of make you adapt to this sort of bizarre world. And again, in a brave new world, it's, it becomes increasingly bizarre and inhumane, you know, sort of a lack of that humanization, more automated and right down to their birth procedure. It's gross. In that book, if it's, a natural birth is you know disgusting the word mother is disgusting you know it's it's all automated deep down in most people there's there's a rebellion against those kind of principles and that's why again you get that love of you know the personified and the, the frontiersman or the the individualist you know that all this is about i guess on a philosophical or psychological subtext you know
1: yeah i think i think it's a theme that you see in a lot of Westerns and a lot of sci-fi, so it makes sense to kind of put it in into a space Western. Um, but, you know, a lot of Ray Bradbury stuff has a similar theme as well. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, even things like the movie Demolition Man from the 90s has a lot of that same theme going on of of institutions uh, over-controlling people and becoming oppressive in kind of like a smiley face fascism sort of a way.
0: And Santiago – It's not overstated, which I think is good. It's not like everyone on the frontier is great. You see the issues that come with with both of those sort of lifestyles, and it's not so black and white. I know the character Tell Williger has a great line where he's talking about Kane's past as a revolutionary of a failed sort of rebel group. I guess Kane was involved in some Group where they were fighting against the democracy, sort of like the, again the brown coats and Firefly, same type of thing. And he says, "quote No matter what kind of promises a man who's looking for power makes, he's not going to turn out to be any different from the one he replaces." End quote. And that's so true. It's about the nature of power itself, and those who seek power, and the sort of psychological trappings that they. Have to feed that power hunger, or that they might even develop if they're not like that to begin with, you've talked about that in your twenty one key concepts episodes and those kind of psychological trappings that power has on people,
1: yeah, and it's not a it's not an effective real solution to just say let's you know take the power away from this person or this group and just give it to somebody else. It's not a real effective solution in the long run or in the big picture. And, you know, I think it speaks to the wisdom of this book that it that it never says that's the answer. You know, it's something, again, you would find in like uh, Lord of the Rings or you would find in maybe in the Who song, won't get fooled again. You know, the idea that uh, revolution in the conventional sense of the word revolution isn't really a good answer.
0: You also get in this story. You get a female character, a really strong female character, which I like in a book. And I think it's better done, actually, than Heinlein did in his lead female character in The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. For whatever reason, in that book, I saw the character, and I I talked about it in the episode that I did on it, start off as really strong, but then sort of devolve into just maybe a more stereotypical role. But I think in this book, uh, basically, you have this reporter, and her name is Virtue McKenzie. And she ends up running into Kane, and they develop sort of a partnership with him because she's looking for Santiago in order to secure a story about him. And she's already received a monetary advance on the story, so she's scrambling to find all these leads. And their partnership is not emotional, and it doesn't ever really become emotional They only team up because there's a mutual benefit there and they don't entirely even trust each other the entire time. And I think that gives a sense of realism to the world and the characters that Resnick has created here. And I'm glad they didn't try to make some like romantic bullshit out of it. Like it would have really undermined the characters, especially Virtue. She's self-serving and calculating and she's a risk taker and Even in the end of the book, it re-highlights her as such. It says something, I forget exactly the quote, but it's like, yep, she went on to keep doing all these crazy things and living a hard and fast life, and she loved every minute of it type of thing. And I appreciate that kind of a character, that he didn't compromise with her. You get this sort of strong female that remains a strong female and self-serving through the entire book.
1: Yeah, and that's exactly the kind of thing I could see Hollywood tinkering with <laughs>
0: um, that I, thought I would
1: fear if they were oh, no making a Hollywood movie where it's like, oh, yeah, oh, boy, now we got to have a cliched love interest, you know, um, artificially duct taped onto this thing.
0: She ends up uh, – Virtue ends up meeting this uh, character named Dimitri Sokol in the book, and he's like this criminal kingpin. And she blackmails him for information. Of course, a lot of the book is, is these different characters tracking down these leads and going from planet to planet and trying to find all these different you know people that can get them closer to Santiago. But anyway, he puts out a contract on her after she leaves the system or the planet or anything like that. He's He decides to play a ball with her to her face, but once she leaves, he puts a contract out on her. He's very much like a kingpin type of figure. There's a quote about him. I'll, I'll read it. It says, quote, If a man had to be killed, his hand may have held the checkbook, but it never touched a weapon. End quote. This is a great parallel to, like, modern-day politicians. And it seems like Resnick is making that suggestion. I mean, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but that's definitely the way that it read to me. Sokol's character gives, like, charitable donations, it says, and, and he craves respectability everything you see in the powerful people in our reality. And he does all this because he's seeking a political office in the book or an ambassadorship, something like that. And it just seems all too familiar with, like you said, smiley face fascism, sort of that. I'm going to rule through benevolence and look how great I am donating all this stuff to charity, whatever. But, and at the end of the day, it's just power lust and the ability to, be able to do whatever you want to do negatively to people through the accumulation of power.
1: Yeah. I find Resnick's cynicism uh, very refreshing.
0: Oh yeah. That's why I do think it would be cool to uh, just to talk to him and see what was in his mind when he was writing these characters and a lot of his other stuff too. When uh virtue finally teams up with the third, I guess, main character that you get in the book, who's sort of hunting after Santiago. There's, I mean, there's several characters you meet along the way, but I think the big three, at least in the way I read it, you have Cain, you have Virtue, and you have the Swagman, which is another character. And they represent sort of these three different types of people who are looking for Santiago for different reasons. He is like a greedy collector, the Swagman. And his interest in finding Santiago is only because he wants this uh, smuggled alien artwork that he believes Santiago is in possession of. So he teams up with Virtue, they meet, and they go visit this alien group. And the alien group is called the Great Sioux Nation. And it's a group of 84 thieves and smugglers who are all of different alien races, and they are bonded by a distrust of man as they are all from sort of conquered areas and conquered races. And they name themselves the Great Sioux Nation after studying the history of man and drawing a parallel between the actions of the democracy and the actions of man's past in like the uh, the 1860s and 70s. And even their the leader of this alien group is called Sitting Bull. It said, quote, they would commit no crime against any race except man. They would accept no commission from any race except man. And they would use no weapons against man except those he had created himself. End quote. I just thought that that was a very clear and direct parallel. Yeah.
1: And one thing you find about Resnick in a lot of his work is that he clearly understands how complex humans are as a species. That – We've got certain admirable qualities, but we've also got this dark side, and in particular that we've got this tendency to be very ruthless in exploiting or maybe even in some cases exterminating the other. And I think this is just a hard-nosed, realistic take on how humans might interact with alien races when you consider how humans have acted towards other humans when they've had the upper hand, right, where Whenever one group of people bumps into another group of people and one group has a huge technological advantage over the other, it's like it's not going to end well for the less advanced group, you know. And and that's just people treating people who look different and don't have the same technology. How much less empathy there would be if it's literally an alien, a uh, completely different species, right? And, you know, add on to, on to that that you covet their land or their resources or, in this case, their world or maybe their labor. And so um, at one point in the book, somebody maybe even – it might have been Silent Annie, who, who we haven't really gotten to yet. But I think she even used the phrase manifest destiny when she's talking about alien races who've been harmed in some way by, by mankind expanding through space.
0: Yeah, there's she has a lot of good quotes, actually. When I got to that part, like that last – third of the book, I was going like underline crazy. I was like, Oh, that's, that's really cool. That's really cool. I was highlighting a lot of stuff. And this was another one where I actually, I had the physical copy of the book and I also had the Kindle version because it was so inexpensive. And in both of those, like I was highlighting and underlining, I was using, you know, different ones at different times, but silent Annie specifically, ironically, I guess has a lot of really good quotes in the book, but Like he's not trying to say, oh, human beings are bad. There is that love of human things and human aspects that you get, like we were talking about before, like that need to expand and go on the outer frontier to maintain your humanity, to not get too automated. But you do get things like this, where there's definitely a tone in the book that aliens i think in general tend to be more easily subdued than human beings or more passive uh a little bit more i don't know how to put easy, easy easily conquerable would be i guess a good way of putting it there's not this alien race that they come up against that's just you know indomitable you don't get that human beings seem to be the more dominant race
1: Yeah, which contrasts with a lot of sci-fi that deals with aliens where um, very often it's people who are at the huge disadvantage, right? And it's, you know, War of the Worlds or what have you, where it's the alien that clearly has the upper hand all the time. And and he kind of runs with this idea of, well, what if people actually were the more uh, advanced and, and powerful ones in the relationship? And I think quite rightly reasons that it would look very similar to what happened when you know Europeans went up against native peoples in various parts of the world.
0: Yeah, I think it's inter- like it's an interesting take. It's nothing I've you know read in sci-fi before. You get a little bit of a picture of this when Virtue is learning more about the swagmen as they travel together. He sort of took the lead when they went and visited the, the Great Sioux Nation, this tribe of different aliens. And the reason he did that He was raised by an alien race himself called the Bellum. And he doesn't really talk about it very much. You get the sense that it's something he's not crazy about talking about. But you can tell he does harbor some sort of love for them in a way, Uh, even though he's a very selfish character. He understands alien culture. But he's so cold and unemotional, it's very vague. And it's overpowered by the other aspects of his personality. His rational perception of them is summed up Well, by a quote in a conversation with virtue, he says, quote, they were a communal society and the concept of individual ownership wasn't very popular with them. Needless to say, this was a worldview that I didn't exactly share. I've been gone for close to 30 years now, and I'll bet some portions of their economy still haven't recovered, end quote. He goes on to discuss a little more about it, but there's some interesting buzzwords and concepts here. Uh, and I think it really ties into one of Resnick's themes in the book, which is human nature, which is what we've been talking about a little bit. Again, the beauty of sort of that pioneering and the, uh, the individual spirit versus the communal existence. And it's interesting that this communal society that they're uh, describing is not able to, to overcome their bad economy or, or anything or anything like that. I don't, that's a not so subtle commentary as well.
1: Yeah, no, I I'd, I'd agree with that and it's I I think what what he has above all else is a, is a tragic view of human nature in a way. In the sense that you would find with a more kind of like old school conservative like Edmund Burke or somebody like that where it's, a, it's an understanding of human beings limitations and things like that. And it's an interesting thing because when you when you run up against the the dark side of human nature and, and the limits of human beings, some people will then turn into hardcore status and go, well, people are so flawed and you know prone to to all these negative things that we have to have a giant, powerful leviathan to rule over them. But then, of course, as, as you or I would would then look at it, we go, well, wait, a minute, that giant leviathan. It's supposed to fix everything that's wrong with these with these flawed human beings is going to also be composed of flawed, imperfect, corruptible human beings. And if anything, the Leviathan will end up being worse because it's going to have this giant power differential and power corrupts and attracts the already corrupt and, you know, all these sorts of things. So, you know, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of complicated philosophical things, I think, going on. Uh, sort of in the subtext of a lot of this.
0: Yeah, and with the Swagman's character you get, I think he's saying that there's that human nature of not only individualism, but the desire to have things, property rights. Like the Swagman was unable to be indoctrinated into a life without these things, even though he was raised by them from a very young age, this communal race. He talks about how, he says something about how, like once you give a, a two-year-old boy a toy or something like that, he immediately understands the concept of property. And that's interesting. He is saying that there's something inherently there in human beings that, you know, have this certain set of values or these certain rules that might be incompatible with other things that they try to adopt. And I just think that that's interesting. And again, it's not something that's, as we've said before, a few times beat over your head. It's just, telling you through the character's actions instead of some long soliloquy. Usually these ideas that he's portraying are just in a short conversation or a couple actions that take place in no more than a small paragraph. I think you also continue to get a periodic inclusion of the Black Orpheus character that reminds you that this is legend. There is a place where the swagman says, Black Orpheus never lets facts get in the way of truth. After all, he's a myth maker, not an historian." And I do like how you get that periodic reminder. And it ties into a theme which you really get at the end, which is the power of myth, even practically speaking. How powerful myth can be. And it takes it in a completely different direction than just the themes we've been discussing before just sort of those libertarian ideas and it gives you something else to think about there's a lot of different things going on and i think that's why it works so well and probably works for a lot of different kinds of readers
1: yeah no i'd I'd agree and it resonates because it's dealing with archetypes i think is what it comes down to it's taking in, in a way that the original star wars films did as well in a, in a different sort of a story but it's taking a lot of these ideas that you find in like the writings of Carl Jung or in Joseph Campbell's sort of popularization of a lot of that stuff um hero with a thousand faces and all that and it's it's dealing with those archetypes but putting them on a on a space science fiction sort of a canvas
0: kane eventually defeats this contract killer on this far world named Altera of Altair, And he inherits her ship. And this is one of my favorite parts of the book, actually. And the ship is actually a cyborg itself. So it was, again, constructed from a, an alien race. It had, there had been some wreckage or something, and they took this human being and fused it with the ship. It's very interesting the way that they talk about it. But the ship is unhappy, this cyborg ship. And his only request is that after completing the mission and helping Cain complete this mission, that Cain will order him to kill himself because he's been programmed to never do any self-harm or anything like that. but he is imprisoned in this in this ship. And I think that that's pure metaphor. It's another reference to the underlying idea of human beings yearning to be free and have control over their own lives. His desire to be human is incompatible with technology. It doesn't work for him. He comments on wanting to be able to taste things or touch things or feel things throughout the story. And I I can't get away from that. It hits hard for me, especially after reading all the Bradbury I, I read from my episode on the October country where Freedom through death is like a big theme there in a lot of those stories, and it's probably commonly used for a lot of authors. But it definitely is used here with this character, this cyborg ship. So things get a little bit less subtle as the book gets into sort of that final third. This whole time, you have Cain and the, and the two others, Cain the Swagman and Virtue. And they've been racing against a bounty hunter named Angel. He's basically the most feared and efficient bounty hunter in the universe. He doesn't fail or ever get slowed down. He is motivated only by accomplishing his goal and getting the money that he needs to get. He has plans to buy a planet or something like this in this far out system where he can set up his own rule. I think he's one of the more interesting characters, even though he's not in the book a lot. I would have loved to seen his ideas that he has for his world that he plans on buying or whatever developed a little more. But I think the mystery of his character works pretty well also. Yeah, and he's
1: definitely another archetypal figure. And oh, by the way, I have to correct you. It's not Angel. It's the Angel.
0: Oh, you're yeah. right. You're right. So, it's the yeah, Angel.
1: But, um, But. You know, clearly a a reference to uh, the Angel of Death, I think, and definitely seems to be like a a personification of that, almost like an archetypal embodiment of the Grim Reaper, even though, you know, clearly it's not literally that he's the Grim Reaper, but he's kind of that way where uh, there's no escaping him. At least that's, you know, what everyone thinks until the end. He's almost like an impersonal force. And it, it almost in a way is kind of like the Terminator or something where it's just, he's sort of this unstoppable figure. The way he, he, uh, kills Man Mountain Bates, the guy who was coming after Terwilliger, he does it in this almost kind of like bored, nonchalant sort of a way. Yeah. And so again, you get this idea of this like legendary mythical figure. And in his case, this very kind of cold and unstoppable force of nature almost.
0: Yeah, it is really cool that they're racing against, like you say, this archetype. Those characters really make a story for me. Again, those quote-unquote bad guys, when you have somebody who's formidable, it just heightens the tension and it makes it more, it puts more on the line and you, you end up caring more about the other characters. They all end up On this planet, Safe Harbor, and it's sort of a remote and insignificant planet, not a place where there's a lot of action. Uh, But really, it's the current location of the great Santiago that they've all been they've all been hunting. They've all sort of tracked their leads to here, to Safe Harbor. So Cain arrives first with the Swagman before the angel arrives, who's now traveling with virtue by this point in the book. She has switched sides in a way, uh, but things do change uh, again. And you begin to see various characters sort of acting out of the ordinary once you end up on Safe Harbor. Up to this point, I'm thinking even though there's been some side flipping and evasiveness between the Swagman, Virtue, and Kane – I think they're all going to try to take Santiago down and and work together, even the angel maybe, because they all want something different. Virtue wants a story. Kane wants to do something that matters, quote-unquote. The swagman wants the art collection, and the angel wants the money. He wants the financial reward. So they all seem to be after Santiago for very different things that drive their character. Mutual interest, I'm thinking at this point. But then (laughs) the book takes a major turn and it's awesome. And it it ended up being way better than I thought it was going to be. And talking about things that are more personal to me and I think have a great appeal to people who would probably be in both of our audiences.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's something, it's, it's not what you would expect in a lot of ways. It's, but it, but it makes perfect sense given, given the characters and what's happened so far uh so you know it's it's a great credit to resnick as a storyteller and it's really in the last you know 50 pages or so of the book that you really kind of get the full philosophical point of what i think resnick was trying to get across whether consciously or not and by the time you get to that point where it's sort of out in the open by leading up to it in the way that he does it doesn't feel fake it right. doesn't feel didactic. It doesn't feel preachy.
0: It doesn't feel contrived. Yeah. Speaking of preachy, what, what did you think about the uh, the Father William character?
1: Oh, he was he was a lot of fun. This yeah. this giant uh, uh, preacher slash bounty hunter <laughs> who apparently must be from a denomination that doesn't think that gluttony is a deadly sin. Yeah, and just an interesting character. It's. As far as we know, he's not a charlatan in terms of his preaching. As far as we know, he does actually, you know, give what he gets from bounty hunting to charities and things like that. So
0: uh, he does like yeah. he does rationalize his uh, gluttonous ways, though. He says, you know, oh, I sure. need I need a, a belly full of food to help serve the Lord and stuff. It's funny to watch his rationalizations at work.
1: Yeah, and he's an entertaining character and you know, at one point does literally shoot down a bad guy from the pulpit. So it's kind of fun.
0: <laughs> yeah, he is. I thought he was very, uh, even though, like you said, an earnest character, but he had some comic relief elements too. seeing that contrast between, you know, a man of the cloth that would totally shoot you down if you had quote unquote paper on you, meaning that there was a bounty offered for you. And that was his code. If there wasn't paper on you or you weren't threatening him, he would do you no harm. But uh, if there was paper on you, you know you were and you were a wanted man, then you were fair game,
1: yeah, and to an extent, all the bounty hunters in in the book kind of are that way, or at least all the main ones, even the angel, he's not gratuitously just going out and hurting people and killing people, even though he has the skill set he could do it, you know he's it's either because there's a big bounty on you or because you're somehow threatening him or thwarting him or getting in his way or something. So even someone as in a way kind of psychopathic seeming as the angel still sort of has a code in a way.
0: So they've all figured out that they need to be here on safe harbor. Father Williams already there and you're not sure why he's there and there's some other characters you you're getting ready to meet at this point in the story like Silent Annie who we talked about and and Moon Ripple. Basically, you find out that Cain has been allowed to find Santiago, and there were clues that were deliberately allowed to filter to him indirectly because Santiago wants Cain to join him, based on his past as a revolutionary and stuff, and his abilities, his personality, his moral philosophies. And it turns out that Santiago is a straight-up revolutionary that's been waging sort of a guerrilla warfare. Against the democracy, he's a folk hero, and the reason his myth is what it is is that it distracts from what he's really doing, and it gives him access to financial resources, who also are you know in league against the democracy, like different maybe shady, seedy folks. you know, think of the sort of a han solo type of thing where you know he's sort of doing things against the empire. So he's a bandit. But not personally. He's not the one that's doing all these things the legend's made of. It's it's just this myth that's sort of grown. And he uses the myth of himself to keep ahead of the game. Often having to intermittently, again, align himself with criminals and the like for mutual interest. But he's really doing everything to assist the aliens and colonists who have been victimized by the democracy's military. He set up hospitals. He's doing all these humanitarian things. Even though he has this persona and this mythical legendary status of being a killer and an outlaw, he's a revolutionary and in many ways a saint. And Cain has this watershed moment where he meets him and realizes things are not what they seem.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it's very interesting because I kind of thought of in a way, um, obviously, he's sort of like a Robin Hood type of a figure. Yeah. Um, But in a way, Santiago is also like the inverse of somebody like Pablo Escobar, who, you know, really was just this completely psychotic, self-interested guy who would kill whoever he had to kill to keep making tons of money off of cocaine and whatever. And yet Pablo Escobar would like, you know, periodically make a big show of giving money to charity. And like he literally did help some poor people. But – it was he wanted an image of being this benevolent Robin Hood character, when the reality was he was just you know a, a vicious criminal. And in a way, Santiago is the opposite of that. Santiago actually is, in a way, this benevolent do-gooder, but not in the fake sense. In in the real, in the real sense, and Santiago is willing to deliberately avoid getting any credit for all the good stuff he's doing because it provides him with with a greater degree of of obscurity there's a point where he kind of says look if the democracy ever realized what i was really doing they would send everything they had to come wipe me out but as long as they think i'm just kind of a bandit they're you know only going to make token efforts every now and then
0: and you also find out that he isn't even really santiago santiago basically is like a pseudonym that carries over to whoever is sort of holding the torch so Santiago has been a few people, and that's yeah, one of the yeah. reasons for his long-lived sort of – like he's been alive for 100 years. So in a way, he is immortal because Santiago is an idea, a belief. He's not just a person.
1: Yeah, you know what it what it made me think of is the Dread Pirate Roberts from The Princess Bride. <laughs> yeah, that's a great. Yeah, I didn't even think of that. Yeah, where you find out like, oh, this is actually like the fourth guy to have that name. You know, and It just kind of gets passed down.
0: Yeah, it, that's true. And it gets passed down at the end of the, the other – swordsman. Mm-hmm. I guess that's sort of what Kane is there for is what you find out. But when he first when he first encounters all this, he's a little taken aback and he doesn't know what to think. He he takes his time, he's a little reluctant. It appeals to his sensibilities, as you know, he was a revolutionary and he sees some of these hospitals and and he understands now the clear picture that this is sort of a fight against the democracy. I want to read another quote, and this is a quote from the character Silent Annie you were talking about before, where she discusses her home planet, and it gives you an example of the tonal shift in the book here in this sort of like last quarter, where it goes from just sort of being this idealistic frontiersy sort of action story, and now you get some more definite elements of some sort of commentary. Again, this is Silent Annie talking about her home planet. She says, quote, It had a large alien population, and we had a military government in order to keep them properly pacified. The muscles in her jaw twitched slightly. When I was 11 years old, I was beaten and raped by three soldiers. The democracy was having trouble getting more military funding, and they didn't want any incidents that might embarrass them and cost them their money, so they covered it up. The three men were transferred to another world and were never punished. I spent two years in the hospital. End quote. The book gets heavily into the abuse and resistance against large, powerful governments. The bandits in the book take a backseat to sort of the horrors of the democracy and I, I love that it's called the democracy, too. It takes a term that's like so like endeared by a lot of people in our society, and it sort of flips it into something terrible. He didn't call it the Federation or the Empire or anything like that. He calls it the democracy. Sounds great, right? Sort of the wolf and sheep's clothing type of thing we were talking about before. It gives you that dystopian vibe. Democracy's supposed to be cherished and loved in our society, but here it's seen as a vehicle for harm. And I mean, me and you might have different views about democracy or or people of our ilk, I might say, might have a little bit, we might know a little bit better <laughs> or think we do anyway. But uh, you can see how a lot of people would be afraid to associate a negative enterprise with, with that term. But Resnick doesn't really give a shit. He just does it. I like that he called it democracy. I think that's kind of ballsy writing.
1: Yeah, I, I appreciated that as well. You know, it's people who've who've read things like Mankin or Brian Kaplan or something like that you know we understand the flaws of democracy we understand the degree to which democracy can potentially at least be as just as oppressive as any other form of men ruling over other men. the fact that there's a ritual called an election that happens periodically or whatever doesn't really uh, change oppression into right. something else and Aside from that, I got to say I really like the fact that Santiago, uh, when he speaks, when we do actually meet him directly, he's not under any illusions about quote-unquote winning uh, with his revolution anytime soon or even at all. And I'm really tired of movies and books and things where there's some sort of revolutionary figure who eventually just wins and then, you know, they all live happily ever after, utopia ensues, everything's fine. I like the fact that Santiago's take, and I guess presumably Raznik's as well, uh, is much more cynical and realistic. And the idea is you might not win when you're fighting against power uh, very quickly or perhaps even at all. It's this kind of pessimistic, stoic take where it's like you should do the right thing in the most intelligent and effective way you can under the circumstances, even if it might not cause you to quote unquote win. You know, I, I think there's an important lesson there, this kind of realistic pessimism if you're somebody who is against like big oppressive Leviathan governments and institutions, that it's actually not good to expect too much in the short run especially, but even in the long run, you don't want to be looking for some sort of short term victory. Because the things that you would do for that are likely to not be good or likely to not work out as you think they will or as you intend than if you understand this concept of like a long war that might not ever end. And I I think like a recent example to illustrate this is something that probably both of us have been a bit rubbed the wrong way by in recent years, which is how many people sort of libertarian or anarchist came out all in – on supporting trump like not even from the reluctant like oh he's lesser of two evils i think this year or whatever but like all in like he's going to give us libertopia in a few years or something and i think what motivated a lot of these people is they you know they they'd been some sort of uh libertarian activist or intellectual or something for a few years and like man anarchy didn't come you know (laughs) the state did the state didn't go away within a few years and so i think a lot of them they had this Unrealistic short-term expectation, and then that allowed them to be vulnerable to being suckered in. At least, in my opinion, uh, suckered into supporting something that's not at all uh, in keeping with their values in any way. But out of a sense of like, well, we, we got to win this thing. You know, the the good guys win within within two hours of when the movie starts, and then everything's fine. Yeah. And I, I just appreciated the Santiago. You know, the book itself and the character of Santiago has this realistic pessimism of like, look, we're just trying to do the best we can and we may not ever win.
0: Yeah, I I actually had that conversation. I was at a a family event and, you know, the person had different views than me, very different views. And we were sort of having a political conversation. And at the end of the day, I'm just like, look, you, you win. I mean, you realize that like debating me about this is sort of of no consequence, you know, being an anarchist, like, I know I'm not going to get what I want. <laughs> like that's not, I don't have my views because it's a win, lose total sum thing for me. Uh I have them because it's what I believe in. If I can convince one person or if I can contribute to that in one little way, then, then that's what I will do. But I'm under no illusion that <laughs> this anarcho capitalistic type of utopia is going to happen. Like it's not basically you're just, you're not in it for a win. And I think that that's, The big thing with, like you said, a lot of the people who were libertarians, but then started, you know, supporting Trump and all this stuff. I think a lot of people simply wanted to win and they wanted to, to sort of morph or mutate some things that were being said or promised into some of their ideas and viewpoints. You do see people get wrapped up into this team A, team B. I'm going to win. No, I'm going to win. And there's this side taking to where I think Santiago here in the book. Uh, And again, appealing to people like you and I are under no illusions that what they believe is best is going to win, that it's the most you can do is sort of try to keep some of these ideas alive and do what you can. As it says in the book, he's trying to just keep the democracy as far away from the outer planets as he can and try to slow their process because that's what he's sort of capable of doing. After Cain meets Santiago, he's talking to Cain in this library, the library you were talking about before and he's talking to him about joining the resistance and he says quote the first duty of power is to perpetuate itself the first duty of free men is to resist it end quote and i know i've talked about that in a lot of books that i've discussed is sort of that power of freedom and stuff like that and if you go all the way back to the first two episodes they did on the trial one of the themes i discussed there is bureaucracy sort of existing only to perpetuate itself and likewise power doing the same. I think it's the same thing as what you're talking about, which is power and the pursuit of power and the domination over freedom is always going to be present. And people who have some of the viewpoints that we have aren't going to wake up and the world's going to be what they think it should be the next day. But that doesn't matter. That shouldn't keep you from holding certain beliefs dear, I don't think, you know? Yeah, and doing
1: what you can uh, to, you know, kind of tend your little corner of reality the best you can. And right after that quote that you read, if I can just share a bit from on my battered 1980s paperback (laughs) that I have, it's pages 312 to 313. You know, Cain is a cynical disillusioned former idealist and so he's skeptical of santiago and he says i've heard this song before and santiago replies ah but it was sung by people who wanted power themselves people who wanted to remake their worlds or even the democracy and kane says and you don't want to do that and santiago replies remake the democracy the second you attain power you become what you've been fighting against besides i'm enough of a realist to know that it can't be done The democracy has more ships than I've got men. It will still be abusing its power a millennium after you and I are dead. Then why persist? Asked Kane. And Santiago answers in the following. You know, Sebastian, I have a feeling that you'd be happier if I were a gentle, white-haired old man who called everyone my son and told you that Utopia was just around the corner. Well, it isn't. I persist in fighting because I see something that's wrong, and the alternative to fighting is to submit— Kane made no comment. Santiago continues, If you want a philosophic justification, you'll find it in my library. I've got a much simpler explanation. And then Kane says, What is it? And Santiago replies, When someone pushes me, I push back. It's a good feeling, admitted Kane, but? But what? I'm tired of losing. Then join me and fight on my side, said Santiago. You've already admitted you can't win. But that doesn't mean I have to lose. He paused. Hell, I wouldn't want to overthrow the democracy even if I could. You know, And I could continue from there, but I think that, that illustrates this kind of refreshing realism slash cynicism slash pessimism. But in a way, it's kind of liberating because when you turn away from the possibility of some kind of unrealistic short-term utopian victory, uh, then you can set your sights on, on what is possible. Yeah. And, and what's actually doable.
0: Yeah, the stakes are different. And it once you realize that as a human being in our society, and you lose a lot of these illusions of like, well, when my team wins, everything will be great. I think what you were trying to say in the way that I feel about it is that the liberation from that, that it, it's actually worth it. And it it allows you to have, I think, a little bit more optimism in certain cases. And I think that's why – Kane eventually agrees to join Santiago. He wants to protect him. He, he sort of gets all in on this once he, he decides to. And he learns that Father William is also joined forces or is sort of a protector of Santiago and the people here on, on Safe Harbor. And there is this resistance, so to speak. And none of them are under any illusions, but at the same time, It allows them to be optimistic over what they are able to control by keeping the democracy hopefully further away from these these outer planets and not having these big plans, as you say, to rewrite the world and and take over everything and change it to the way that they see fit. So Cain, basically, he chooses sacrifice over living solely for his own gain, Uh, and he's moved by these conversations with Santiago. And he agrees to sort of help carry on this guerrilla warfare against the democracy. And Virtue comes down because now, at this point in the book, the angel has arrived. Now they've got to deal with this guy, this unstoppable force. You know, Virtue's been traveling with him. And she meets back up with Cain and the, and agrees to do a bunch of stories that will perpetuate the tale of Santiago, which will get her what she wants in effect. She's still out for herself, but there's a way of her doing that and, and linking back up with Cain. Santiago goes to confront Angel himself. He confronts him and Father William is seriously wounded. But the Angel is he's bested by Cain, who, who shows up. And in the nick of time, of course, he reveals himself to be Santiago. But this is after the current Santiago is slain by Angel. He's made the the mark that Santiago carries on his hand that's been made on his hand in a scene before, and he sort of takes the torch as the new Santiago. There's no like necessarily happy ending, but it's still an ending that's acceptable.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's happy just in the sense of you know that Santiago's still out there. So so that's that's happy in a way but you know it's limited it's realistic it's not like oh then then we just killed the dictator and everything was great which is sort of the standard american narrative it's like oh all you got to do is go in find out who the who the bad dictator is take him out and everything will be fine you know after all it worked in uh worked in iraq uh worked in libya you know all these places but instead we get this you know much more kind of, it's a victory of sorts, but it's a very limited and, and realistic victory.
0: Yeah, the end was really satisfying. You get Kane basically, he, he reveals where he would like to be buried to this sort of second-in-command guy when his time comes. And it sinks in that Santiago is indeed the cyclical spirit of the free and willing, against the ruling totalitarian sort of democracy. Nothing changes but your perspective on the characters and the world created by Resnick. You know the resistance will not prevail, as we've been talking about, but they may keep some areas in these far-off planets protected for those who can't be contained by rulers, for those with that sort of indomitable frontier spirit, those who possess some of the ideas that free people cherish. It was just fun- it was fun to read. Not only are you sort of ended with that moral exclamation point, but it's fun to read. I'm glad you introduced me to it. I really appreciate it. It's nice to read something that's exciting and something that ignites your imagination, but that also appeals to your sensibilities maybe on a philosophical sense and has something to say, something good on on multiple levels. It's weird too because. I've been wanting to read the Odyssey lately and the Iliad and those and get back into some of that stuff. And this also sort of had that mythology type of feel to it in the future. So it was satisfying for me in that way. It appealed to a lot of sensibilities that I have as a reader.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm glad I could, uh, could share with you. It's one of my favorite novels, probably uh, for sure. One of my favorite sci-fi novels. And I, I just love the idea That, I mean, aside from the fact it's a space western, has all these aesthetic qualities I like, but that it's got this message that, in a way, is is the most subversive of all. And it almost kind of reminds me, not almost, it does remind me, of something that uh, Ben Stone, the bad Quaker, has said, which is that you don't successfully fight the powers that be the state by going at it with head on warfare. And That's kind of that's their game and they're very good at it and you'll lose. But instead, he says, you know, you think about it as if it's this big, scary, dumb, uh, sleeping monster or dragon or whatever. And really kind of the best you can do is while it's sleeping, you scatter a bunch of Legos on the floor around it. So when the monster wakes up in the middle of the night, it steps on these Legos and, you know, kind of pisses it off and, and messes with it and ruins its day and whatever. And so it's this idea of this kind of chronic, low-intensity, unconventional warfare with elements of sabotage and agorism and black markets and everything, not really trying to win in the sense of overthrowing the system, but just kind of to resist as as cleverly and skillfully as, as you can. And it also calls to mind the ways that the people who live in the state-resistant parts of the world that... uh James C. Scott talks about in books like The Art of Not Being Governed, where there's these people who live in remote areas, in in rugged mountains, in swamps, things like that. Uh, Maybe they're a maroon community of escaped slaves, or maybe they're just people who have deliberately kept themselves outside of a state, and they're resisting being taken over by early states in various ways, and they're not normally trying to overthrow whatever's the nearest state to them. Or to eliminate it, but what they're doing is they're kind of cleverly seeking ways to resist being taken over by it, to resist being oppressed by it too badly. And sometimes they'll even use the state that's next to them. Um, for example, like trading with them or, or hiring themselves temporarily as mercenaries to the neighboring state or whatever for their own purposes. They'll kind of use it for themselves, but they'll still use various tactics to remain outside of its direct control. And this is kind of similar to what I see Santiago and his organization doing in these frontier areas of the galaxy, the same sort of idea.
0: Yeah. Well, CJ, I want to thank you for taking the time to do the episode. It was fun. I always enjoy talking to you, and I've really been digging all your episodes lately, especially I wish you continued success with the podcast and really, anytime you just want to riff on a book or a film or a, a series of on a show or something like that, just anything at all, some other topic, I'd love to talk to you again. It's always a pleasure when, when we talk to each other.
1: Yeah, well, back at you. Um, it's been, been great talking to you, and I've enjoyed this as well. And uh, thanks for agreeing to do a joint episode like this.
0: All right. Thanks so much, CJ. Take care.
1: Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Check out the website, PROFCJ.org or you can just put in DangerousHistoryPodcast.com to get the show notes for this and every other Dangerous History Podcast episode. While you're there, you can email subscribe to the site over in the right-hand side, and if you put in your email address there and subscribe, you won't get any spam or anything like that from me, no junk email. You'll simply get an email notification every time something new is posted at my website. You can follow me in the show on Facebook and Twitter as well, and you can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, however you prefer to consume your podcasts. If you enjoy and appreciate this show, there are many different ways you can help me keep this show going, growing, and constantly improving. One easy way is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History Podcast to those you think might appreciate it who don't already know about it, and you can also help the show out by leaving ratings or reviews in venues such as iTunes, which helps the podcast get ranked more highly. If you would like to help out the show financially, there are many ways to do so, and you'll find them at profcj.org slash donate, and one of the best... Most helpful is to sign up to support the show via Patreon at patreon.com slash profcj. And if you pledge a contribution of at least $5 per month or more, you'll have access to bonus episodes that I publish in Patreon available nowhere else, as well as the ability to join the Dangerous History podcast, Scholar Warriors, private Facebook group. You can also make one-time or recurring donations via PayPal, and you can donate via Bitcoin as well. And of course, if you buy things from any of my Amazon affiliate links or my ABOoks affiliate links, go through those links, then do your shopping as normal, and the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small commission at no additional cost to you. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.